I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. And we have an outline in the worship folder, so I invite you to take the outline and follow along as we get into God's Word together this morning. You know, the key event in all of history is the cross of Jesus. And um, we've, as we've been going through the book of Mark, spending this last year or more going through the book of Mark, uh, we're now early on the morning of Friday, and we're going to spend the next weeks looking at how Mark reports these events. You know, someone said that loyalty isn't about who acts true to your face. Loyalty is about who remains true to you behind your back. Are you a loyal friend? Are you loyal to others? Are you loyal to Jesus? How would, how would you, think about this, how would you treat someone if you knew beforehand that they were going to stab you in the back, that they were going to deny you and, and uh, be disloyal to you, betray you, how would you treat them knowing that? All four Gospels tell us that Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, that he would sell his loyalty and turn his back on his master. Here's what blows me away about that. Knowing that Judas would betray him, think about how Jesus treats Judas. He washes his feet. He invites him to sit next to him at the Last Supper. He spends three years in close contact with him, giving him friendship those three years. All the while knowing that Judas planned to betray him. And so you have this on your outline. Jesus, by both his words and actions, never gave any hint whatsoever to the other disciples that Judas would betray him. John writes this in John 13. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. He knew it. And you would think that in communication, even nonverbal communication, that the disciples would start whispering to each other and say, I know it's going to be Judas. But they had no clue. Jesus, over the last three years, gave no indication whatsoever. But Jesus says in the next verse in, in John... His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's John referring to himself, was reclining next to him on the other side of Jesus. Simon Peter 
gets his attention. Hey, John. And he motions to this disciple. That's what it says in the text. And says, ask him which one he means. Who is it that's going to deny him? Ask him. They had no clue. And that blows me away. What grace. What grace and forgiveness for Jesus to live with three years and not give one hint that Judas would betray him even to the others. Say nothing. Do nothing. Instead of rejecting and removing Judas, as I, that's what I would have done. I would have said, man, you're out of here. I know what you're going to do. No, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus loved his enemy to the very end. And you know, you can teach knowledge to someone, you can teach them certain skills, but you cannot make a loyal friend out of someone who's, un, who's proved untrustworthy. And so in John, Jesus says to Judas, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to Judas. Unbelievable. You know, Jesus staggers in Gethsemane as he gazed into the cup that he had to drink that was full of our sin and the wrath of God knowing that this is what we deserved. Jesus took it all. And so we, Jesus has this passionate all-night prayer that ends in Verses 41 and 42 of Mark 14. This is where we ended a couple weeks ago. Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And from here on, Jesus has this steel-like humanity as he is willing to take all of our sin and all that our sin could heap on him, all the judgment that came with it. And so with those things in mind, let's read our passage and ask God the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and challenge us and encourage us. Starting at verse 43, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd, of, a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near <clears throat> drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. 
Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is God's word. So the first thing we see, and this is number one on your outline, is that the enemies of God are our enemies. The enemies of God are our enemies. So if someone is an enemy of God, then as God's children, they're our enemy as well. So we need to see who they are and understand what is being communicated to us here. And uh, there are three groups, Judas, one of the 12, a crowd armed with swords and clubs, and then the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders. So we'll take the second one first, a crowd armed with swords and clubs. This isn't a surprise, uh, because we expect the world to oppose Christ. They do. And they, they oppose the gospel of God's grace. And they oppose us as we preach it. You know, I explained the gospel <clears throat> to a guy one time, and, and he said to me, let me get this straight. What you're saying is that someone can live a horrible life, and then at the very end of their life, they can even be on their deathbed, they can really receive Christ as their Savior and Lord and go to heaven, even though they've lived like the worst life ever? And I said, yes, that's correct. And then he said, and you're saying that, that someone who, he said, I have a friend, and he said his friend's name, who's lived this unbelievable life. He just gives his life away to everyone, but he's an atheist, doesn't believe in God. You're saying that even though he's lived a phenomenal life, that, that he would spend an eternity apart from God in hell? That's what you're saying? And I said, yes, that's correct. And what he failed to see, and this is on your outline, is that very bad people and very good people are both sinners and separated from God. And both of them need the grace of God. We all need God's mercy. We all need the grace of God. And those are two sides of the same coin that is God's love. Mercy is God withholding the, the punishment we deserve and grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And they're both the, the same coin of God's love and, and, and God's mercy and God's grace. It's all combined there. And people don't mind it when we talk about God, but when we start talking about the exclusivity that Jesus himself said, when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, when we start talking about the exclusivity of the gospel, people don't like that. They get offended by that. They get offended that there's only one way to God, that the truth is so narrow. And that is the nature of what truth is, right? Truth, by its very nature, is narrow. And what Jesus said in Matthew 5 is still true, and you've got the reference on your outline. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then we have the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, the ones who were sent, to, sent the others to arrest Jesus. And these are the ones, and we, we've come to expect opposition from those who are very religious And that's who these people represent. That's who they are. They are the religious people. You know, legalism has always been a challenge in the church. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Galatians to these people who were being legalistic. And and, and listen to these rules that come from one of the most celebrated Christian schools in the second century when someone said, asked them the question, uh, how should we, what should our lives look like if we really want to please God? And they said this, here's the answer from the school. Colored clothes, for one thing, get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments. Don't eat any white bread. You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is to lie against him who created us, to attempt to, uh, to, attempt to improve on his work. What? These were the rules they had to follow the Lord, to be a godly person. These are absurd. You've heard me say this before. When we come to God, all we need is nothing. And most people don't have that. Most people want to bring something. They say, Lord, look at all I've done for you. Not only have I been in church all the time, but, but I've, 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 I'm involved in all these ways of serving you at church and outside of church. Look at all I've done for you. We want to bring something with us in addition to the grace of God. And that's what the Bible calls legalism. That's what these religious people do. Nathan confessed for all of us. We're all Pharisees. We could all say, it was like an AA meeting. My name is Kenny and I'm a Pharisee. And your name is your name and you're a Pharisee too. We insist on pointing to the awesome things that we do for God. And then back to the first one mentioned, Judas, one of the 12. David prophesied this in Psalm 41. He wrote, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who, who shared my bread has turned against me. You know, we, we expect our enemies to be treacherous. We, the, the pain of betrayal here, though, comes from Jesus' close friend, one of the 12, who had received nothing but but love and kindness from Jesus. And so if there are enemies within the church, and this is on your outline, what are the enemies in the church? There are, there are many, but let me just mention three. The first one uh, is, false t- is false teaching. 
teaching that's not biblical that comes from the pulpit or comes from anybody who teaches in the church. And then the second one is worldliness. You know, it can happen when people are in the church and when we act no differently than people who are outside of the church. We have the same attitudes, we have the same actions, we live the same life, they can tell no difference between us. So you know, there are places where Christianity is illegal. If Christianity happened to be illegal here, other than coming to church on Sunday, what would be the evidence presented that would convict you of being a Christian? So worldliness. And then finally, as we've already mentioned, legalism. As an enemy of the gospel, you cannot be saved, legalism says, unless you do this or that. And legalism is dangerous because it gets us to look away from the cross and to, look at all I'm doing, I'm sleeping on a hard pillow, I'm not shaving my beard, I'm not eating white, we look at all these things that we can do. And again, it's always grace plus something else. That's what legalism is. And there's nothing, nothing that you can add to the grace of God. We come with open arms. We bring nothing. Open hands. It's always a battle against grace. The second lesson we see in these verses is Number two, that the kingdom of God is not of this world. Now the betrayer had arranged the signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? You know, we can't ever expect the people uh, that we interact with who are not genuine believers to understand the nature of God's kingdom. The, The mob comes out to arrest Jesus as if they're hunting a wild, murdering revolutionary. And when they did come to arrest Jesus, Peter draws this sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest. Do you think Peter, a fisherman, was aiming for his ear? I don't think so. I think he was aiming right for the middle of his head and he missed. And think about what Jesus does. We learn from John, well, we learn from Luke, in Luke that Jesus touched the man's ear and healed him. And, you know, he wasn't carrying a pocket mirror. So he's feeling, and, and at first he feels it, and his hand is full of blood, and then he feels, and his ear's gone, and then he feels again, and his ear is there. And, and we learn from John his name, Malchus. And, and Malchus, we apparently still arrest Jesus. He should have arrested Peter. Peter was the one that was after him. I would have loved to have seen Malchus's response to this whole thing. Someone told me after the first service, there's a play written about Malchus. Um, I, I didn't know that. 
that would be, I think, a, a fun play to see. Um, and then we have the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders uh, who held strongly to, believe, to the belief that Jesus' kingdom was a worldly and political kingdom, which is why they came prepared for battle to arrest him. That's what Judas was thinking. No one said it more plainly than Jesus did in John 18. My kingdom, Jesus says, is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And Paul assures us that the mighty weapons that we are to fight with are prayer and faith and and hope and love and God's word. And we use these by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. That's how we do it. And so we live in and we represent the kingdom of God. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. And, and Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 to put on all of the armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. And so God calls you and he calls me to be fishers of men as, as, as part of that kingdom. We're citizens of God's kingdom and our responsibility while we're here is to fish for men. And so whatever situation you're in, God wants to use you to do that, to bring his kingdom to, to your world, to the people you know, to your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. Carissa Smith is uh, a Christian and a doctoral student in psychology and a new mom. Uh, and she wondered how God could use her in the midst of all her sleep depravity, in the midst of all of her busyness, to bring the good news of Jesus to her world. And having a newborn, uh, she had to spend a lot of time in the library, and her prayer on the way in was that the baby would not scream at the top of her lungs, Tegan, her little daughter. And so one day they were in the library and Tegan was babbling away like a happy four-month-old would babble away. And a man nearby her said, tell that kid to shut up. And all of her mother bear instincts and her psychological training and her Christianity rose up within her, and she said to this man lovingly but firmly, I am sorry for whatever happened in your life that would cause you to be so disturbed by a happy baby. But I will not tell my baby to shut up, and neither will you. And she thought, he would say something in anger back to her or walk away. But he put his head down and he said, 
I apologize. And then he said, I lost my son when he was two months old from SIDS. And that was over 20 years ago. And I've been angry about it ever since. And I lost my marriage because I was so angry. And now I'm alone. She wasn't expecting that. And Carissa told him to sit down and started asking him questions about her son. And it opened up a way for her to share Jesus with him, share the gospel and the good news of forgiveness and the grace of God. And after a bit and with tears running down his cheeks, he asked if he could hold Tegan. And she gave him to this man. And he put his cheek against her forehead. Held her. And then gave her back to her mom. Said thank you. I don't know if he became a Christian. That's not Carissa's responsibility. It's not your responsibility. Our responsibility is just to share the good news. To give people hope. To point them to Jesus, to salvation in him. And so whatever your situation, whatever you're going through right now, wherever you're at, your world, those are the people that God wants to announce his kingdom to through you. And so you just pray for opportunities and open doors. God will give them to you. You watch. You just need to be available for him to use. The third thing that we see in this passage is in verse 49. And that is that the word of God predicted this. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But underline this in your Bibles or highlight it or whatever. But it says, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Everything that Jesus went through in Gethsemane, from Gethsemane to the cross was predicted hundreds of years before in the, in the Old Testament. A lot of those predictions you can see in Psalm 22 and I, Isaiah 53, you've got a list of some of them. The rage of his enemies, the betrayal of Judas, the price of the betrayal, 30 pieces of silver, the forsaking of his friends, our Lord's being dealt with as a criminal, numbered with the transgressors, the piercing of his hands and his feet, the parting of his clothing, all predicted. All of these things are precisely foretold in the word of God. All these blows, all those things listed there, like one blow after another on Jesus, God knew it all. He knew everything that was gonna happen to Jesus. So what are the chances that all of these prophecies about Jesus would be fulfilled in one man? 
You know, there was a man named Peter Stoner who wrote a book called Science Speaks, and he gives this illustration in the book. He said, if you were to take 100 million silver dollars and spread them across the state of Texas, he must have been Texan or something, and you mark two of them with an X and you turned them with the X side down, and you told someone they had two opportunities to try to pick up a silver dollar and one that had an X on the back of it. And they're just two among 100 million. He said that's the same chances of eight, just eight prophecies being fulfilled in the same person. And how many prophecies do we have about Jesus? There are dozens and dozens of prophecies about Jesus. But he's saying just eight of them to be fulfilled in one man, the chances of that are... are like one in a hundred million, one in 50 million, whatever the odds would be. Peter explains it like this in Second Peter. We have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they, what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that, and here it is, that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. All of Jesus' sufferings were ordered by God and brought about for our salvation, for your salvation. You know, man's wickedness may get us down. And the inconsistency that we see in other believers may discourage us. Even our own sin disappoints us. But God knows exactly what he's doing. On the resurrection morning, when when God's plan became obvious, Jesus shows that even through the most distressing times and the most distressing circumstances, he was simply fulfilling God's wise and holy will. And then in verse 50, number four on your outline, we see that the people of God are human and will fail. It says, then everyone deserted him and fled. It wasn't just Judas and Peter who abandoned Jesus. It was every last one of them. That's a pretty good reminder to all of us that we are all fickle and we fail. And the Bible is really a book of failures. Jerry went through some of them last week. Noah's drunkenness and Abraham's fear and Lot's uh, Lot's choice, bad choice, and David's adultery and murder and Peter's fall and then the abandonment of our Lord by all of his disciples in the garden. That's all of us. There's a little Judas in all of us. And yes, the Bible is a book of failures. 
but they're failures that God took and turned them into his success. Just like God is doing and wants to do in your life. Turn the failures that you've had into his success for his glory. We all fail. We're all disloyal to Jesus. How are you disloyal to Jesus? And I think really we're disloyal anytime we take our eyes off of the cross. Anytime we, we forget about the grace of God. Anytime we try to add anything to the grace of God. There is nothing we can add to the grace of God. And it's grace that draws us back. And we confess our sins And he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And so we worship him for his forgiveness. And this is the promise that God gives us in Philippians 1. This is for you. That God who began the good work within you will keep right on helping you grow in his grace until he returns. Until that day when he's finally finished and Jesus Christ returns. What a great reminder, and this is on your outline, that if we are drawn by grace alone, we are also kept and preserved by grace alone. It doesn't depend on us. We must never place any confidence in ourselves, but our confidence is in God alone. And even when these faithful men Even for them, their faith gave way to fear. And they're overwhelmed by their circumstances and they all deny Jesus. And this should humble us and remind us that we're all prone to sin. That there is indeed a little Judas in all of us. And we ought to be thankful for God for his faithful faithful and preserving grace And we should be ever mindful and give him praise that he is such a high priest as this. And and the writer to the Hebrews tells us and says, we don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing and experienced it all, all but the sin. That's who Jesus is. God is faithful. And God will not fail And then finally, number five on your outline, the gospel of God is redemption by the blood of Christ. So there's these really strange verses in 51 and 52 that are in no other gospel. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So who is this guy? Do we even know? Can we know? This is only mentioned in Mark. It's not in Matthew. It's not in Luke. It's not in any of the other Gospels. But earlier in Mark chapter 10, in verse 21, you have another hint, I think, as to who this, this young man is. And in Mark 10, it is the, uh, the account of the rich young ruler and Jesus speaking with the rich young ruler. 
And only in Mark does it say in verse 21 that, that Jesus looked at him and loved him. How would Mark know that? Unless Mark is the rich young ruler. Which I tend to think he is. And he's the rich young ruler who sold everything and is following Jesus and all he had around him was a sheet. And that's him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Different commentators say this is Mark's signature that he wrote the book. So think about that. This is Mark. And I think it's Mark saying, hey, you know what? I'm a sinner like all of them. Yeah, I was there. And I got away because they were focused on Jesus and him dying for me. I escaped. So what can we learn from this event? I I think it's a picture of the gospel. N.T. Wright uh, has a commentary on Mark, and he says that, that by putting Mark, putting himself in the garden here, that he's trying to remind us about another garden. And in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given a test, and they failed. Except for some fig leaves, they escaped naked. They felt shame. Now here we are, centuries later, and here's another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and here's another test. And everybody's failing the test. Even this young man, stripped naked, leaving in shame. But there's something different about this garden because in the middle of garden, there is someone passing the test who would be a substitute, who would be your substitute. And why are all these others failing? Because they're afraid somebody is going to arrest them or kill them. They're afraid of the world's sword. But Jesus is standing firm. Jesus is facing something worse than the world's sword. Jesus is facing God's sword. So with Adam and Eve in the garden, do you remember what happened when they left the garden? It's in Genesis 3.24. And it says, thus God expelled them and placed mighty angels at the east of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword to guard the entrance to the tree of life. No one could get back into the presence of God without going under the sword. And what was that sword? It was the the sword of God's divine justice. And our sins separate us from God. And there's no way back into the presence of God unless someone takes the divine judgment. And Jesus was in the garden facing the ultimate sword for you and for me of divine justice. And he stood firm for you and for me. And if Jesus came as just to be an example and he said, hey, follow my example, and look at how I heal people and how I deal with people. It would crush us because we would know that we could never, ever live up to that example. 
But if Jesus comes as our substitute, then that gives us life. If we see him reversing places with us in the garden, it sets us free. Jesus is getting what we deserved so that we can get what he deserved. Think about this. He gave up cosmic wealth. He he gave up, and he comes into poverty, he comes into our poverty so that we could become spiritually rich. And if you see that, if you see that he gave up his name, the name that is above every name so that we could get God's name put on us. That's what it means to be a Christian. It it, it means I have Christ in me. Christ lives in me. And, And so then we'll look at everything differently. We'll look at our reputation differently. We'll say everything I have in this world does not represent my ultimate identity. And we have, we have to hold everything loosely with loose grips. Why? Because we're not afraid of what someone thinks about us. We're not afraid if someone thinks less of us because we only care of what God thinks of us. We, we live for an audience of one. We live for him. And so we look at what we have here physically, our financial possessions, the people we love, our friends, everything we have, and we say, this isn't my real treasure. Being a part of God's kingdom changes the way I look at money. It changes the way I look at my reputation. It changes the way I look at my time. It changes everything. And we spend ourselves for the kingdom of God. We we spend ourselves for other people. And the world looks at us and says, you're crazy to risk your, your reputation and your career and your money. Where's it going? And you say, well, I have joy because I'm no longer of this world. I'm no longer a part of this world. I don't have the sword hanging over my head all the time. I, I have a reputation beyond this reputation. I have treasure beyond what I have in this world. I have a life beyond this life. And so it leads us right back to loyalty and being loyal. Are you being loyal to Jesus? Will you be loyal to him? Will you ask him for opportunities to represent the kingdom of God? And remember, When we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that the battle we're in will not go on forever. We know that eventually the kingdom of this world will crumble. And we thank you that you've shown us in your word how to live like Jesus in this world. And we thank you most of all that Jesus is our substitute and our savior. Please melt our hearts and change our lives with that truth. 
And if there's someone here who has never put their trust or confidence in you, that they would simply respond to you in faith and say, Lord Jesus, come into my life and be my Savior and be my Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the God of peace equip you with everything you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of the Holy Spirit every good, th- every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to Jesus, both now and forever. Amen.